Greetings, programs, and welcome to another new episode of the Awesome Friday Podcast, uh, the only show on the entire internet where we record, we talk about two movies each week um, with a sense of gravitas and humility. Uh, my name is Matthew, and with me as usual is Simon, who is smiling wryly for those of you at home, because he knows I'm talking shit. Uh, how are you, Simon? I'm fine. Welcome, everyone. Come in. Come join us. Have a cup of tea. I've just boiled the kettle. <laughs> me, me and my dog. There's always tea in this house. And uh, sit down while we regale you with stories of two movies uh, that you can also watch um, if you choose to. So come and join yeah. us. Indeed. Indeed. And our movies this week, it's one of those interesting weeks where uh, the two movies we've ended up with are quite different. And I always sort of enjoy that. Um... Yes, they are. They are. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for an episode with a theme, and then there's something to be said for uh, a week where we watch just two wildly different things. Because uh, yeah, movies, definitely. movies, as with all art, contain multitudes. Yeah, you heard what, it here what first. What do you prefer? What do you prefer? I prefer when we just choose two completely random things. So we got more to talk about. <laughs> I run out of things uh, to say if it's on the theme. That's true. Um, I, I actually do quite like it when the when the films are uh, very 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 different. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's more I think it's more interesting personally. Yeah. Um, and I also I mean anyone who's listened to the show for a while will have picked up on the fact that I you know we I try to make it so that we cover the big stuff when we can. Um, although you know going to a cinema is a bit of a challenge lately still. Um, but I also try and cover like smaller stuff and especially I, I try to get us some Canadian stuff whenever I can. And I feel like that's sort of as Canadian podcasters and as smaller podcasters, I feel like that's kind of our, at least in part, our responsibility to, to, you know, cause like Disney doesn't need our help. Everyone knows that guardians of the galaxy three exists, right? But not everyone's going to know that the other film we're talking about this week exists. And I feel like that's more important than talking about something like Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. So on the Canadian film note, the really good news this week is I'm just scanning to find the name of the distributor. But um, a uh, brother has been um, picked up by a big US distributor for full theatrical release in the US, which is fantastic news because... uh, uh, Oh, here we go. It's Vertical. Vertical has bought Brother for oh, nice. US, US distribution rights. And it, that is a fantastic movie. And uh, if you are... Uh, if you see it pop up in the cinema around you, because it's, it's getting periodical um, cinema runs here, but now Vertical's got it for the US, hopefully it'll gain a bit more momentum um, and more people will see it. And it's a really, really good film. Like, great example of a very distinctly Canadian film as well. Um, mm-hmm. Or if there's, there's, that's such a huge umbrella term because Polaris is too, and they, they couldn't be completely different, but um, it couldn't be any more different. But Brother is really a- exceptional, and I learned a lot from it as well. It's really good. Yep. Um, Elevation Pictures, which co-produced it here in, uh, or and distributed here in Canada, is probably one of our biggest... Like national film distributors, but uh, I'm they typically like if you watch a film that's by A24 or Neon in Canada, chances are you're watching an Elevation Pictures release. Um, 
but I'm really glad that uh, it's finally it's going to get some some wider releases outside of Canada because I mean it, it it cleaned up at the CSAs this year at one I think everything it was nominated for except for one thing um, and it was nominated for like everything so and it was entirely deserving it was easily the best Canadian yeah. film last year yeah yeah uh, uh, no yes that's true that's true. What, were you about to dis- were you about to disagree? I, I no, I was really completely captivated by Polaris. So personally, those two movies were an equal high point for me. So I I would say Polaris is as good. But I think on a on a, on a bigger technical level, Brother is is the best Canadian movie of last year. I think it's. Certainly, a movie that demonstrates that Canadian funded and directed, not just filmed here, but actual Canadian films can hold their own against any American big production. It was just exceptional, but it was directed. Um, what's the name? Clement Vigo? Is that the director? Clement, Clement Virgo. Clement Virgo, thank you. Vigo is the guy from Ghostbusters. Um, <laughs> Clement, Clement Vigo, uh, I hadn't heard of him before, but I've um, I was so blown away by the way this was directed. I looked at his his past movies, and, and the experiences speaks for itself. And um, if you want a really good example of the possibilities of Canadian film, and I I said at the same time as well, it's been some really exceptional sci-fi coming out of um indigenous filmmakers the last couple of years that um whereas they haven't always been wholly successful as a film as a whole like blood quantum is a good example of that the the ideas and the the processes behind it are super exciting with night raiders and polaris i mentioned as well i think there's um the the indigenous history both before and after colonization, really lends itself to the same kind of stories that are told really well through sci-fi. And um, I think that's a very, very exciting time for um, uh, that kind of filmmaking. And I was speaking to a comic creator yesterday in the Vancouver Comic Art Show, which is a wonderful thing. And it's on, uh, if, if it's still on at this time, then you should go if when you hear this. But uh, as a comic creator, they're making a indigenous sci-fi comic, uh, a graphic novel next year, and it's so steeped in like the colonial fears and the horrors of that against the sci-fi post-apocalyptic background. And I, I really love that crossover, and I think Canada's making some really great genre movies at the moment. I mean, there was a long period of time where. Um... There's a long period of time where I would argue that many of many or even most of Canada's best films were coming out of Quebec. Uh, they had a really strong film culture there. That's where we got uh, filmmakers like uh, Denis Villeneuve and Jean-Marc Ballet um, and all kinds of others. But in the last, like, yeah, probably five, six years, especially, I think most of our best Canadians, a lot of our best Canadian stories are coming out of indigenous filmmaking and they're making really interesting sci-fi and they're making really interesting horror. Um, and also just really interesting. I saw a really, there's a great film from what last year, the year before um, called bootleggers, which is all just about like returning to a reservation and trying to make it a better place. Um, mm-hmm. And it's uh, they're I feel like they're, they're having a moment 
And I, Blood Quantum, which you mentioned, is another great, great example of that, like an indigenous horror science fiction moment that's happening. And I, uh, wow. I really, I really hope it continues. Um, you know, we're in like, like one of our earliest episodes of this podcast, we talked about that film Beans, which is in, effectively a, an interrogation of a horrible atrocity that happened <laughs> to indigenous people in Quebec. And, and uh, I feel like, again, like, I just hope this moment continues for a while because it's, it's going really well. And I think it's also just important that we confront our history through art mm -hmm. in a way that maybe we haven't been previously. There's something about indigenous, uh, he, like, uh, the, the humor of that culture really works for sci-fi and horror in the same way that, um, say, British humor in Shaun of the Dead works, that, that balance. Like, we, um, there was an indigenous uh, sci-fi horror, I can't remember the name, but it, it, like, it had a thing. It was an alien that took over, like, bodies and had tentacles, and it was a group of young girls um i'm not sure you've seen it actually the group of young girls basically um in this small community fight an, an alien that um crash lands and starts taking over bodies and um it's this really nice mix of sci-fi and horror but also this kind of fatalistic quick sarcastic humor as well which um if you saw the last of us it was a really good example of that in the last of us TV show where they they come across an old um, native like granddad and grandma and Joel's holding a, a gun up. Uh, the reason Joel put a gun his gun down is that the the grandma offered him a bowl of soup when he came when he came in, and uh, it's uh, it's a very very funny scene and that that kind of humor that kind of uh, dry sarcastic humor works really really well. Mm -hmm. Sci-fi horror. Yeah, I mean that it helps in that case when you get, you know, legendary actors like Graham Greene to be the people in the show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know who Graham Greene is. What? Is he a Canadian actor? He's like a very famous oh, indigenous is. indigenous Canadian actor who you know is Academy Award nominated yeah. for Dancing with Wolves and oh yeah, right. you know he's a he's uh, a yeah. he's, uh, he's always been great and. Yeah. Uh, he has a very particular, yeah, that sort of dry, uh, yeah. dry sarcasm sense of humor. It works really, really well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, uh, yes, what were you talking about? Your promotion of Canadian movies. Yes, that's always a good thing because I, I have much less understanding of visibility of it. Um, than well, you. part of it. Well, I mean, part of it is that I just want to expand my own. Like, I, A, I want to get Canadian content out there because I feel like there's a lot of it and it's a lot better than most people would give it credit for, generally speaking. Um, but also, I just want, you know, we only have so much time to watch movies every week. And I mm. like I like consuming stuff that is, um, you know, local, <laughs> um, homegrown, as it were. I feel like, again, like it's at least at least partly I feel like it's a bit of a responsibility of shows like ours. Yeah, where do you draw the line with Canadian content? Like, is is a David Cronenberg directed American funded movie? Is that a Canadian content? Um, I don't have strong opinions about this. I want to sell. I personally, I would like to celebrate anything that Canadians are doing. So, like, 
Women Talking is a fantastic film that's starring a bunch of Canadians and directed and, and adapted by a Canadian who won an Oscar fantastically. Um, but it's American funded, so it's not a quote Canadian film, according mm. to the Canadian Academy. But that's a pretty Canadian film, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to tell where to drop the line. Um, yeah. But definitely, it, it's definitely easier to be like, that's a Canadian film when it's a film that is funded by Canada, by some Canadian entity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and there's a reason why a lot of Canadian films are, oftentimes they're co-productions. Uh, like um, that film Brooklyn, I don't know if you ever saw Brooklyn with Saoirse Ronan. Um, no. Very, very lovely film. Um, and it, uh, she was nominated for an Oscar for it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not a film you would necessarily think of as being Canadian because it's set in, spoiler alert, Brooklyn, and she's an, <laughs> an, an Irish immigrant to Brooklyn in the in the fifties. And but it's a Canadian Irish co-production, and and it's an adaptation of a novel, and it's uh, it's just it's very so. There's lots of films that are Canadian that don't necessarily appear Canadian. Is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, or there was one a couple years ago that I never got around to seeing called uh, French Exit, which I think had Michelle Pfeiffer in it that won a couple of CSAs. Um, and uh, it, like it was not set in Canada. Didn't, as far as I know. So like mm. it's uh, it's sort of a difficult, difficult thing. Like we sort of, it's interesting because we sort of let that go when it's a big Hollywood production that's set in some other country. We're like, well, it's still Hollywood, but um. For Canadian film, in my mind, I always want to be like, well, why isn't it set in Toronto? <laughs> like, why isn't it in Montreal? Why isn't it in Canada? And uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe because they're, mm -hmm. maybe because we don't have the, the monetary oomph behind our productions yet. But mm -hmm. anyway, yeah. Well, hopefully, exposure is always a good thing, isn't it? And the more exposure means more money, it means more movies. Creativity can only take you far, unfortunately. Well, the bigger problem with Canadian cinema, and again, I'm just going to point out, I have exactly no inside baseball on any of this because I'm not in film production. But as I understand it, just from listening to some people who I know speak and other people reading articles about it, um, the bigger problem with Canadian cinema is that we do so much production in Canada for for American production companies. Like all current Star Trek is shot in Canada, uh, at least like Strange New Worlds and Discovery are both shot in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, Lower Decks is made in Canada. Um, lots of films are shot in Canada, and that actually ends up taking up like the bulk of our resources and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Like these yeah. foreign productions, there's not necessarily that much left over for actually Canadian productions. And uh, I feel like we could be doing better, a better job as a nation in promoting that. Uh, in much the same way that like the, the British lottery funds the creation of arts in Great Britain, I feel like we could be doing more like that here, personally. I, th I think you've got a difficult job in this country, though, because unlike my tiny country, this is a massive country mishmashed together with such different communities and cultures and approaches to life and art and filmmaking. I think it's always hard to say this is a Canadian thing because then how do you, there's no such thing as one style that, that shows it as purely Canadian because there's not one umbrella that could cover from where we are north 
all the way east. Um, and I think that's why I'm most excited about uh, the, I mean, Brother was exceptionally made, but the indigenous stuff feels like it's a distinct thing that could be called, this is a Canadian thing. And I, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to have one one thing. I think as a nation, we contain multitudes, and I think that our art can reflect that. I'm just saying that I think that we could do a much better job of funding said art, uh, of, of making of making sure, like we already do, we have laws that make sure that Canadian broadcasters make, you know, have a minimum level of Canadian content. I'm just saying that, like, I'm sure there's a way we could better fund Canadian content, and not just fund the creation of it, but fund the um, promotion of it as well, because Telefilm Canada funds a, an actual shit ton of content, um, mm. like lots of TV, lots of movies, but then a lot of it you just never hear about, right? Mm. Like the national the National Film Board funds a, just a ton of short film and documentary and and such like that, and you just never hear about it in a meaningful way, right? Like it's not out there in the public consciousness, and we do have some. Uh, you know, efforts to do that, like Made New is pretty good. Um, and, and there's, you know, a couple of big campaigns to forward Canadian content, but I just, I just feel like we could be doing yeah. more. I feel like yeah. Made, Made New is a really good Twitter account and it's, you know, it's really nice to see Canadian actors talking about Canadian film production in front of movies, but like, why aren't the, I feel like there should be billboards, you know, <laughs> like there should yeah. be more, more of it. Um, Cause we do a good job. I think we do a good job, generally speaking. That's funny you say about short films actually one thing that i've really been blown away by is that sometimes cbc seems to have a short film program because they do, randomly yeah. randomly on a friday or saturday night at midnight they'll show like a 25 minute short film and without exception they've all been amazing and there's one there's one sci-fi I, I wonder if you've seen heard of it there's a sci-fi short film where a handyman comes to fix something in a woman's house but um that's not a like, sci-fi film. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. But then an alarm goes off and a gas is released. And if you don't hurry and put your gas mask on, you die. And it seems to be an, a normal part of this sci-fi life. And then one of the masks breaks and, um, and the second alarm comes off and they, the women and the men have to fight for this remaining gas mask while they've been friendly up to that point. Uh, it's really amazing. And so I think um, there's a real hotbed of really good short films coming out of this country as well that I would love to see more of. You know, it's interesting. I was about to say, because uh, I, th I think it's been later in previous years, but there's actually a short film festival in Canada called the Future of Film Showcase. I've covered it a couple of times, um, but I just went to look it up to like, so we could maybe promote it as like a thing you could watch. And it actually just ended. <laughs> Oh. And it's, a, it's another thing that, like, I, you know, I'm sure that you can find the films online if you go to it's fofs.ca. Um, but every year, it's just short films by up and coming Canadian filmmakers. And they, all the ones I've seen have been great. Uh, and uh, now I look forward to finding this year's too, because they, like, the last, the last times I've watched it have all been really good. And I, uh, uh, it's, you know, short film is another just area of film I think we don't give enough regard to, very generally speaking. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it definitely has a function in, you know, on the festival circuit and getting new filmmakers recognized. Um, 
but there's tons of great short films and we don't mm. as a society we do not pay attention to them yeah yeah um good so that's uh, the state of canadian filmmaking we should probably talk about the movies we <laughs> it's a very interesting I mean, conversation there. i mean probably we should probably talk about it's not really required that's not what the people are here for they're here to speak about to hear about our opinion on canadian short cinema let's you know right right Absolutely. Anyway, so that being said let's dive into our first film uh, which is the tiny <laughs> tiny production super indie uh guardians of the galaxy volume three Low budget, uh, but makes the most of it yeah so um guardians of the galaxy volume three we both finally caught up with and it's been out in theaters for uh i guess three weeks now mm-hmm. this, is, this is its third weekend so two weeks in cinemas um it is the third part in the guardians of the galaxy trilogy from marvel studios um, all your favorite characters return from those two movies and also from Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. And it finds the Guardians, uh, actually, you know, pretty much right after the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, which we did, I believe, cover on a Christmas episode of the show. Um, uh, and it finds them at their home base of nowhere. Um, and they are sort of randomly attacked by uh, a new villain called Adam, who is a creation of the Sovereign, who uh, appeared in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And this leads them... Uh, Rocket Raccoon is injured, and they can't help him because he's got... Like, his cybernetics have a kill switch, that if they try and intervene, it'll just kill him. So they have to go and find the key to turn off the kill switch. And this starts a whole adventure to find this thing and they end up confronting rocket raccoons past and his creator, the high evolutionary, um, who's played wonderfully by Chukwudi Uwuji. And, uh, and he is just a terrible, terrible megalomaniac who wants rocket back because rocket is the, the, the one creation he's ever made that can show true invention. Uh, not just, it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting discussion of like, <laughs> Of there's there's definitely a conversation to be had about the state current state of AI and this movie, in that all the stuff that the <laughs> evolutionary has ever made is not capable of true invention. But anyway, um, so yeah, the gang goes on this long hijinks filled uh, adventure to save their friends and then to confront the bad guy in the end. And I I actually want to spoil as little of this movie as possible. Because um, I don't know if you are familiar with the works of James Gunn, but his Guardians trilogy is among the best things that Marvel has made, I think is a pretty well-accepted fact. Um, and even his, his, he's now the head of DC Studios, and his Suicide Squad movie is easily one of the best things that came out of the DCEU pre-Flash reboot, anyway. And so is the Peacemaker series that he made. And what he is really, really, really good at, uh, aside from just managing an ensemble, but he's also really, really, really good at managing the emotional core of his stories. And this movie is no exception. This movie dives very deep into the very tragic backstory of Rocket Raccoon, who is 
very clearly an insert for the author himself. And there's definitely moments in this movie that will bring a tear to your eye. I I cry. I cried in the theater. I'm, I'll just say it. I cried in the theater at certain moments in this movie. And um, he's really, James Gunn is really good at making, it's sort of the same thing that Taika Waititi is really good at in that he's really good at the sort of like happy sad or sad happy, if that makes sense. Um, in that like everything will sort of work out, but not necessarily the way you think. And uh, it'll make you cry along the way. I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling because I don't want to, I want to talk about how much I like this movie, but I don't want to talk too much about the story of this movie because I think it's important to see it for the first time with fresh eyes. Um, but what did you very generally think about the movie? So I, there's a lot to like about this film, and I don't think you're wrong saying it's the trilogy is probably the best thing that's come out of the MCU uh, as, as a whole thing. Um, and I, uh, James Gunn is a really distinct and interesting filmmaker and scriptwriter. And even, even when something doesn't wholly land, I still think he's got such a dynamic way of presenting a story that it's, uh, it, it like the, the look of this film and its editing and it's, it's just general visual quality is just quite a bit higher than quantum mania or for love and thunder like I, it's it's got a, a depth to it and it's got a, um, a real spark to it and there's some design choices in this that i loved so much i wish they'd been the main part of the story uh, at one point they go to a place and the place is filled with things and those things become a central part of that that part of the MacGuffin recovery and I kind of wish that had been the whole movie, to be honest, because um, the pace really picks up at that point, and um, the design, the character design, which which I think appears to be a mix of physical makeup and CG, but I think it's it's a sign that um, because I can't wholly tell, I think it's a really good sign actually that I, I'm not sure what is. There's definitely a lot of physical makeup. And prosthetics, and they're really successful. And then, so are you, are you talking about the place they go in the second act or the place they go in the third act? <laughs> I'm talking about the place they go in the, uh, hang on, this, the second act. The, the, second the, act. the, the space station like place. No, the, oh, uh, oh, isn't that the third act? That's the third act, surely. So there's a, again, the place that, for the ball. It's in the trailer. You know the part where, where oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. throws a ball the planet, at someone? The planet. You're talking about the planet. The planet. Okay, good. Uh, the planet. Yeah, I was trying, I'm trying not to add any <laughs> specificity at all. Um, they go to a planet, and it's filled with um, a, a life type. And um, I just love really good visual design, character design. And I just thought it worked brilliantly. And it kind of... James has talked a lot about how he, he, he wanted these to be his Star Wars. And that planet, that whole planet sequence really felt like he was uh, going for that kind of feel, but it was very, very distinct. And the um, the the physical makeup's excellent, and the design, and I guess the CG integration is excellent as well. And um, the, the, their arrival to their leaving, that whole sequence, I think is really, really good. Um, I Overall... If I have an issue with this movie, 
I wasn't... Uh, I was surprised at how overtly violent it was in many places. In that, not just comic book violence, which is sometimes shown, sometimes alluded to, as it is in Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, but visual graphic violence, like bones being broken and and blood and shots and significant, like if you are a person who has issues with animal cruelty, you should know that this might not be the movie for you to watch. Like it's, it, it, it is, um, I think the first one that has a PG-13 rating, I would have to check that against the other two Guardians of the Galaxy. I think they're all I think they're all PG thirteen actually. I think basically every basically every Marvel movie is PG thirteen. That's sort of like the demographic they're shooting for. It certainly felt this. This certainly feels for an older audience than Guardians one and two. There's certainly enough uh, overt violence in this that would make me reconsider showing it to my kids at this point. And certainly my daughter wouldn't be able to cope with the animal stuff. It's very gut-wrenching because uh, Rocket, in his injury, is... is uh, In the first half of the movie, he's only really present as in the young flashbacks. Um, maybe it's more than half, actually. And those flashbacks are uh, devastating, really devastating. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a much darker movie on the whole. Um, well, I did... The... the, the, the the angle of it being darker, I thought, actually made it a really good coda to end the whole Endgame. Um, like a really nice epilogue to Endgame, I thought. In the ways the other movies since Endgame haven't really been... Like, the they haven't really addressed the trauma that people felt from that experience in a way that I thought this film did quite successfully. And the way... I've seen many, many, many people in their review of this, talk about it as this is probably going to be their end of their Marvel um, sort of chapter of their lives because they felt like it it took the, the, the themes that resonated from Endgame and kind of drew them all to a close. And what's nice about this film is that everyone gets, to, every single character in this movie achieves an end to their arc. Uh, very clearly, very specifically, almost in a rope fashion, they get a uh, end of the arc, which is this is who you really are, and that's that's that being an ongoing theme in Guardians of the Galaxy is like learning who you not who you project yourself to be, but who you really are inside. And there's definitely one moment you, you probably can guess the moment. The only bit of this movie where I got teary eyed was an end to an arc really close to the end of the movie, and. Um, I have to say as well, I thought Zoe Saldana was absolutely exceptional. And the the thing about Gamora, it's not really a spoiler because it's been introduced before, but the Gamora from Endgame has gone and this is an alternate Gamora. And I think what Saldana's done with the performance style and the physical style, and also the hair and makeup's different as well, but her... Um, mirror approach to Gamora, I think, is just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And yeah, she, I, same same character, different reflection. I thought she was absolutely exceptional in this. Yeah, I think like her performance, and but also the way that Gamora is written in this movie, I think, is also really uh, exceptional and interesting. I think so. I think Gamora. One thing I did want to talk about 
and it's it's mildly spoilery, so I'm sorry. Um, but one thing that's really interesting in this movie to me is that Gamora is is in it, right? So Gamora dies in Infinity War, and she's you know uh, a, t- a version of her is brought forward from the past in Endgame, who now exists. So it is Gamora, but it's not it's not our Gamora from previously, and it would have been super easy to just give her a revelatory moment and turn her back into the Gamora we love. And this film very explicitly chooses not to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the smartest and most interesting choices that maybe a Marvel film has made in years. Um, because like there are, you know, Marvel films are, are fine, but they often take the safer route. Right. And this, this, this yeah. whole theme of like Peter having to accept that he's that she's not his Gamora, and it takes a whole film for it to happen because that's how films work. But anyway, um, um, and when he finally does accept that, like when he accepts that she's not his Gamora, and she finally admits that, like there's a, there's a moment between them at the very end that is just a, a wonderfully acted moment from both of them, yeah, and it's a wonderfully true. written moment. As they part ways, and I, I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but like, again, like this whole, this whole arc is just wonderful, and I'm really glad they didn't just be like, oh, I, you know, I remembered, you know, I ha- give her the same experience again yeah, and turn her into the I same character. Would, totally thought they were going to do that when she started listening to the music in the ship. I thought that was yeah, trigger. yeah, that or like you know the moment where they they do finally save Rocket, and there's a moment where. You know, she she smiles at them and they're like and their found family. And there's a moment then when you're like, Oh, okay, she's coming around, right? But the film yeah. never never goes there. It clearly like reignites the spark to like to make this Gamora more um, sympathetic and to make her maybe closer to our existing yeah. our old Gamora. Yeah, but never oh, but sure. never never turns her into our old Gamora. And really, actually closes the door on her and Quill being together. And I think again, yeah. I think that's really, really they smart. Did. And they could have thought I patched that so easily, um, just like, oh no, he's fine now. Oh no, she's Gamora again. She heard the music. She can now understand Groot. She's back. But um, it was a far stronger ending and a far braver ending too. And it is. It's a minor spoiler, but it's um, it's written so well up to that point. Definitely, that's one of the. Um, best parts of the film, I think. Yeah, and then there's a there's a really interesting. It's it's not really happening, but there's a really interesting hint of like maybe Nebula has a crush on Peter, and I find that really interesting. <laughs> it's yeah. it's like a little it's, more into in that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the humanization of Nebula, and that is definitely part of it. And when there's another part later on where she she's definitely. Um, softening and and that's part of it as well and and her kind of almost being angry at these feelings she's having as well it's oh no no it's fantastic in this not not almost she's definitely angry (laughs) at the feelings she's have that she's having she's she doesn't that's all another whole thing with the guardians right nebula is angry because she doesn't know how to process these other feelings she's having that Mm. aren't anger right the humanization of nebula over the the Guardians trilogy and Endgame in particular, I think is one of the most successful arcs that the MCU has done. Mm-hmm. And But at the end of the day, this movie is ultimately 
Rocket's movie, right? Like Rocket yeah. is, he's not even really in it for the, you know, the first yeah. act and a half because he's incapacitated, but he is ultimately, I think he's actually the protagonist of the Guardians trilogy, right? Like, mm -hmm. like functionally, yes, it's definitely Peter in one and two. That's Peter dealing with his past and his daddy issues and so on. But like, I know from interviews that Rocket is the character James Gunn identifies with. And mm -hmm. it his arc from being, you know, at the very beginning, he's very acerbic, pushes people away, doesn't think anyone will ever love him, to the second film where it literally ends with him crying at a fireworks display, realizing that when he dies, people will miss him, to at the end of this movie, basically being the one who's like, wait, we're break, like, we're, like, what? Like, I can't, it's so hard to talk about without spoilers, but the, um... I did enjoy the analogy of the grand, uh, what's it called, the grand uh, evolutionary? The high evolutionary, uh, the, yeah. The high evolutionary, who is absolutely not an allegory for Disney, uh, gets rid, get, uh, chooses to get rid of his chosen son and then realizes he's the only one with a brain and does everything they can do to get him back. Like, that's pretty thin. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, I was uh, I was going to come back to that too. Like, so his arc over the three movies is uh, as with Nebula's. I think so. Everyone in this movie, everyone of the Guardians, does get a fairly complete arc. But I think Nebula's and Rockets are actually the most complete and probably the most touching. And uh, but yeah, in this film in particular, the High Evolutionary is an insert for Disney, and Rocket is an insert for James Gunn and his whole saga of being fired is um. It's um, on the nose, we'll say. It's uh, it's it's not well obfuscated, um, but it is really well executed. Like, I, and that's the thing about these movies is that, and I I feel like that was maybe the thing that was missing from suicides from the Suicide Squad was that these films feel very personal for James Gunn to me, and this this film may be the most personal of the three. And mm -hmm. uh, as a result, I found it. I know you prefer the first one, and I prefer the second one. Uh, and I know I'm definitely in the minority on that. But I feel like the ones where he touches on something, the more personal it touches on, the more I resonate with it. And this one feels very much in that camp for me. Mm -hmm. It's it is I it is hard to talk about without without spoiling exactly why. But this this movie I this movie is very touching. Uh, in addition to being, again, like you were saying, overtly violent and overtly kind of gross and disgusting at times. And uh, there are definitely going to be some moments where people are like, I was definitely squirming in my seat at some of the animal mm. stuff. Um, yeah. I don't think, like, there's definitely, I've definitely seen at least one person online being like, this movie glorifies animal cruelty. And my response to that is, like, you clearly oh, didn't watch the movie. Like, <laughs> Show, showing a thing is not endorsing a thing, you know, like, um, and that seems to be a, a, a way people think about things what? now, that if you show a thing, you're endorsing it. That's just not true. Um, but that being said, like, it's pretty rough. Like, it's very, and even the, the worst of it is only, it's only really implied, but the way it's, Im the way it's implied based on what you've already seen is just heart, heart So, I, my, my. Uh, I, I, my only frame of reference is my children, and so if you've got children who love Guardians one and two, 
just be careful with Guardians 3 because my kids could not cope with Guardians 3 and they, they've seen a lot but my, my daughter in particular she's explicitly said I'll watch anything I just don't want to watch any animals getting hurt that's her line and so clearly this is not the, this is very much not the movie for her but even for my son like there's the the overt violence so it kind of surprised me that the my takeaway from this movie the things that I wish were different is that it there is choices in this movie to make things more violent than they necessarily needed to be. There's certain shots that happen that didn't have to be that shot. And I think it would have been, I think it would have been better if those shots hadn't been in there. Um, if the, uh, but, and I also think it's, it, it, it's a touch too long. I think it tries to do too much and the pace suffers. But my, the reason I love guardians one is that I just, I really enjoy spending time with these idiots being idiots together and i have always loved the we're going to get through this we're going to improvise our way through this and get through it by working as a team by being idiots and it doesn't necessarily mean we're the best at it, it just means that we don't like tenacity is my favorite quality it, yeah it, we just don't in, we just don't stop <laughs> yeah i i it's same with indiana jones like he's not always successful he just doesn't stop like what track what track is probably one of my all-time favorite line reads in any movie and and there's a lot of that in guardians of the galaxy one and, and to be fair it happens in three as well but i think because rockets removed from the ensemble for so long i i've i found the pace uh it doesn't really get to that goofiness the idiots being idiots together improvising their way through bad situations till they get to the planet and i absolutely adored that whole middle section when when they're just um, improvising their way through this solution, I thought it was really, really strong. And um, I, I think the final act, the final set piece was perhaps a little bloated as well, but it does have a single, quote unquote, single shot, because I'm sure it's many, it, of course it's many, many shots, but really hard to see that how it's stitched together. There's a single battle uh, shot, it's a one shot in a corridor that is very likely the best single fight in any Marvel movie and I include Avengers in that as well like it is the, the the it's all about choreography a good fight scene is exactly the same as a dance scene it's exactly uh, the same thing it's all about the choreography it is it is it's the choreography and the editing and no so I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt to be like it is it is it is at least half the choreography but as we've discussed many times before it is also the way you shoot the damn thing. Yeah, so that's exactly where I was going with. So it's, the, it's being able to see and be present in the geography of the choreography as well. It's being able to follow how the choreography links together. So you're absolutely right. It's the being able to be present in that moment and not be cut away from it. And um, that's very hard to do in a one shot. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of planning, which is why we watch a bunch of terrible movies that are cut to like 20 cuts for one action scene and it the way it kind of swept i i always love as well um characters popping into frame over the top of characters so they can be given their hero moment avengers does this very well as well but i thought this was better and uh, i'm going to be re-watching that scene over and over and over because it's just yeah. from a filmmaking perspective it's really good really really good yeah and i think it helps that uh, as i understand it most or all of the film was shot with IMAX cameras, like with IMAX intended as its like main way to be viewed. Oh, really? And oh. that just 
that just means that like you can't you can't move those cameras around as much and so mm. having the so as a result the all of the scenes with action there's there's a bunch of long takes actually one of the opening shots of the film is a long single take that's clearly just a long single take that i thought was wonderful um even though it's kind of somber and yeah. the just the 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 color of this film is so distinct and and wonderful and lovely compared to like that was one of my big one of the complaints about Quantum Mania is that it looks kind of sludgy right like Marvel movie, a lot of Marvel movies look they were like they were color graded to match concrete and this is one of the movies where it doesn't feel that way everything's very bright very comfortable uh, very very um, primary colors as well primary colors the, uh, lots of contrasts. Yeah. Um, and you can just see it all. Like you can see detail in the background that you just haven't been able to see in age in ages. And, uh, from a filmmaking perspective, it's one of the best made things so far that they've done, I would say. Oh, easily. Um, and like, we haven't even, we haven't even begun to talk about like Adam Warlock is a new character in this, in this movie. And I really enjoy the, the choice to make him developmentally a child. Because, <laughs> um, uh, like, he's such a serious, somber, boring, one-note... Like, I'm sorry. He's a major part of the Marvel cosmic continuity. And he's a major part of the whole Infinity Saga in the comics. And he's also kind of boring. And I, I really just love the choice to invert that in this and to make him kind of a goof, <laughs> kind of an idiot, kind of a child. Um... And I think that uh, um, uh, Will Poulter does a really, a really great job of like conveying that. But for me, I would say honestly, the the standouts in this film would be uh, Zoe Saldana, like you said, uh, Karen Gillan, like you said. I think that Bradley Cooper actually this might be his best turn as Rocket and yeah, one of his oh, better sure. performances. Yeah. Um, uh, it's great to have Linda Cardinelli back. It's great to have Nathan Fillion back in a way that is not just a one-scene cameo behind a ton of CG or a poster on the wall. <laughs> and, you know, Chris Pratt is doing his thing, and I think he's he's quite good this time. But for me, the standout is Chipwoody Awuji, who plays the high evolutionary. And I'm just going to say, if Marvel learns anything from this movie, it should be hire more people from the Royal Shakespeare Company to be a Shakespearean-level <laughs> bad guy in your movies. Because he's he's, it's been a long time since we had a villain who was just a straight up villain, uh, without some like weird sympathetic background that we were meant to relate to. He's just a bad guy. He's just an asshole. He's just a villain, and he chews the absolute shit out of the exquisite scenery. Yeah. And I enjoyed every second of him. I enjoyed every second of hating him on screen. <laughs> Uh, he was exceptional. I mean, he's a great actor, and I think um, I really enjoyed his uh, very clearly directed physicality. He um, he he had this thing where if he wanted to walk up to speak to someone, he kind of put his left the 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 foot that's furthest away from the camera really far ahead of his hip and sort of squatted down into it, and so his whole body is like. Uh, pressed forward and his arms are out as well and it's just it's a theater technique but it 
it looks really, really good, especially as he's um, clearly not all there, very unhinged, and um, uh, he would... It's a shame, I don't know um, uh, what's happening with Jonathan Majors, but he would make... If they needed to swap another black actor in for, for Kang very quickly, I'm sure Uh-oh. they could. I'm sure they could work that in very, very well, and he'd be exceptional. So I, you know, it's never the high evolutionary is never named as a variant of Kang in this movie, but also he wears a purple suit and he's played by an African African American, uh, sorry African British um, actor, and I think that it would be very easy to just recast Kang with this guy, and it would it would be easy to be like, oh, we're all variants of, you know, it's fine, just just recast him. I think it would be wonderful. And, you know, regardless of what's going on with Jonathan Majors, like, let's say, best case scenario, he is cleared of all charges and reforms himself to be not an asshole on set. He's just too toxic right now, right? So just yeah. recast him. Buy him out of his contract. You can definitely fucking afford it, Disney. Buy him out of his contract and cast this guy <laughs> instead. Yeah, it's very good. It's very, very good. So, um, uh, what, what's your trilogy ranking? If we remove the holiday special out, um, your, the three movies, what's your one, two, three of one, two, three? Yeah, I know. I was thinking about this last night and I don't honestly know because it's so, it's such a good, complete story. The three of them together, it's actually I think pretty hard for me to rank them individually. Um, but I prefer two to one. So it's more of a question of, do I prefer this one or one? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I find it very hard to choose between the first chapter and the last chapter of a story as being better because mm-hmm. the first chapter has all the fun introductory stuff. And the last chapter has all the resolution stuff. And I don't know how to pick between those two things. So mm-hmm. having only just seen it yesterday, I don't think I have an answer for that question just yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is my cop-out answer. <laughs> yeah. uh, for me, I think it's much, much easier for me because I, you know I don't like volume two. Uh, I adore the first one and I thought this one was fine. So it's one, three, two for me. Mm. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably for me like, two and then one and three in a tie honestly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that's and that's not to say that one and three are bad they're both great um but two just like two deals with stuff that always affects me in a way that uh yeah, yeah. you know that's so it's a very personal take but i also yeah. think i also think two looks better than one but that's a whole other discussion um but yeah so how many stars are you gonna give it today a three-star movie for me. It's good. It's fine. There's there's elements that I I um that didn't work for me um that I've already outlined. It's three stars. How about for you? It's four for me. It's definitely four. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that yeah basically puts it on par with one for me. Um, mm-hmm. it's and it's a like I say as a whole. Um, I think the the Guardians story is probably. It's it's on par with the strongest stories told in the MCU, um, but overall, it's clearly the most the most competently made from start to finish. <laughs> I I mean I wouldn't say 
it's even on par. I'm struggling to think of another like uh, themed entry that is as good as those three together. I, I want to say, like, I know I don't like two very much, but I think they are quintessentially what I think about when you transfer a comic story to a movie. Like, it's bright, flashy, funny, ridiculous, serious notes um, in a way that I think the other, like the Iron Mans or the Avengers, I think lost their way with, with all of those elements. Uh, I think that I think the Captain America's story is top tier in the Marvel universe. That's held back by middling filmmaking. Mm, yeah, personally, at least the filmmaking's good. Even if you don't like elements of these movies, the filmmaking is always good. I think James Gunn's a, a very interesting filmmaker, as I said earlier. Uh, yeah, he really is. And speaking to the whole violence aspect, you can definitely tell that he got his start working at trauma in this mm. one like mm -hmm. it is his oh, yes, roots yes. his roots are still in horror and i think that that's a, an interesting yeah. thing yeah yeah for sure good yeah so go see it go see yeah. this movie see what you think yeah or you know so, it will be it'll be on streaming it'll be on disney plus eventually so uh yeah, but yeah. having made uh, having had the chance to see it in a theater i would say that if you can see it on a giant screen you will be rewarded for doing so Mm -hmm. uh, it is a it is a gorgeous film to look at. It is. It's so colorful. So in a in a world where color has been <laughs> removed from all major movies, it honestly drives me crazy. I, I my kids, my mom, my mum, <laughs> my wife wants to take the kids to see um, Little Mermaid remake, and I'm mm -hmm. I'm pushing back a because Little Mermaid's in my the four Disney movies that uh, I think are five-star exceptional the the movies that that uh completely connect me to disney little mermaid is one of them and secondly it's just so fucking dark like everything i've seen from it it's just so fucking bland and dark and i just don't want to see that so the yeah. early the, i can tell you the early reviews for that film are out and they all they basically universally say it's not as it's not as dark and bland as it is in the trailers okay. and but also much like aladdin um, when it, apparently when it's trying to be its own new thing, it's great. And when it's trying to be the thing, it was like when it's trying to be the animated series, the animated show, uh, it's just mm -hmm. it's fine at best. Yeah. So no surprises them. No. Oh well. Okay, so we should move on to our second movie. As we're almost hitting an hour. Yeah, we should. Um, so why don't you give us a lowdown on the new? Uh, Elevation Pictures here in Canada and A24 release in America uh, You Hurt My Feelings starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus Tobias Menzies and written and directed by Nicole Holofsner mm, Who I'd not heard of before but I will definitely be checking out her work because this is a brilliantly written uh, stab at people our age who are involved in anything creative. It's, it's basically a, uh, a very sparkly written romantic comedy, romantic dr dramedy um, about the lies we tell each other in relationships in order to make the other person feel good. And um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays Beth, who's a writer. Her first book, which was a memoir of her growing up, um, did fairly well. But her second book, um, which is a work of fiction, uh, it, it's a crime 
fiction that um, even her agent hasn't read yet and turns out it's probably not very good so she's struggling with her own creativity her husband played by Tobias Menzies is a psychoanalyst psychologist maybe uh, and he is doubting whether he's even any good at it because he just feels tired and um, then the Beth's sister who um, seems to buy lights for uh, entitled rich people her whole life uh, is married to a wannabe actor and so basically it's it's one of those things where everyone's trying to do their best uh, and uh, lying everyone's lying to everyone but not out of uh, maliciousness it's out of trying to make the other person feel that their creative exploit is valued and it's um, it's it's a light film, it's an hour and a half, it's very snappy it has a very clear beginning, middle and end and it has a, a, a nice conclusion, it's not too deep but the script is sparkling, the, the acting is really, really good. And it does make you kind of uh, question that. I'm 46 and I've been with the same woman for 21 years and married since 2007. And you, you're, you're in a very similar position. And, and you're going to recognize a lot of your relationships here because you do fall into ruts. You do fall into patterns. You do fall into not telling your partner the whole truth and not being your honest self. And I think that builds like plaque, doesn't it? And sometimes you just got to clean your teeth. And this, this, this movie is like something's overheard and truths come out. And um, what I really, really, really liked about this film is that what I thought was going to happen is that these older people realize that the spark has gone from their relationship and they don't want to be together. But w without really spoiling anything, this film's much more about, I, it's, it doesn't even go down that route of maybe our relationship is is not the spark it used to be it's more about why don't we tell each other the truth why are we not honest with each other anymore why do you tell me my book is good uh when you when you don't think that and it's more like well i don't care if the book is good i just want you to feel that it's good and, and so much of this movie surprisingly is about the the way we show love for others is is just lying to them <laughs> Pretty much, to, yep. to make them feel good, and and it's the first half of this movie. I'm like, oh god, this is going to give me questions because I've I've been involved in creative stuff my whole life, and that need for validation is just crippling. Validation from from especially from your loved ones, and um, this movie really really focuses on writing, acting, professional validation, like where we all feel like when we haven't got the spark anymore. And that really resonated with me. And what I really liked about its conclusion was like finding a way to support each other through being honest and through still being supportive, but just being honest with each other. And I thought it was just really sweet. It's a really sweet movie. And um, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. I did not want to watch this movie. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I watched I watched the trailer and thought, I don't want to watch this film, A, because I'm so busy and I it, it doesn't feel like something's going to engage me. And also, I don't want to feel things about my own life at the moment. I want escapism. And so what I appreciated about this film was that it was, the script was beautiful. Um, and I love Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Like, I think she's just amazing. And Tobias Menzies really surprised me. I've never seen him in this role before. Um, uh, he's usually more of a stuck-up English Englishman on a on a boat uh, somewhere, but, <laughs> um, 
he uh, he's got a very respectable American accent, and he just underplays it very very well. And um, it's just a, a really nice group ensemble, uh, and and everyone kind of finds an answer. And also, they've got a son called Elliot, spelt in the same way as my Elliot, and it just it felt very true to me, and um, I really enjoyed it. How about you? Yeah. That's uh, you basically covered it. I mean, it's uh, it's not the deepest of films, but it's not. It doesn't really have to be either. Like I know it's been a. It originally premiered at Sundance, um, so I I know a number of people have seen it, and that was sort of a complaint that it doesn't really go into any real depth. But it doesn't have to. Like the subject matter is mm. is fairly straightforward, um, and the the dialogue and the performances thereof. Uh, are are pretty great throughout, and it's not trying to be anything more than it is. Right? It's a story about we we lie to one another, and why do we do it? And should we do it? That's pretty much it. And it's it's only it's ninety three minutes of that of those questions, and mm-hmm. it turns out when you get a couple of great actors together um, and they talk about these things. Uh, you're going to come up with some answers, you know, like, and mm-hmm. Nicole Hofsner is a really good writer and the, the dialogue in particular, the dialogue between um, uh, the husband and wife between Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies um, is just so like spot on for anyone who's been in a long, like a long term relationship, the way they speak to one another has a, a cadence and tone that you will recognize uh, right down to the fact that they are maybe they're like they're intimate in small ways that makes their son uncomfortable and <laughs> yeah. not just it's not to say that they're like making out in public but just the way they share food and the way they like oh, yeah. play off one another <laughs> um, I think that'll hit home for many people um, yes. because it's a true thing and that's 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 really the hallmark of a, a great screenplay like this, right? Is that it, it digs down to some core truths, and this film does a really good job of, of that. And I think that Julia Louis Dreyfus is at, you know, she's been at her peak for for two decades now, but she's still at her peak <laughs> uh, in terms of the way she's able to rattle off this dialogue in hilarious but ultimately meaningful ways. Um, and you're right. Usually, Tobias Menzies plays someone who, I mean, he he won a an Emmy or a Golden Globe for playing Prince Charles, not, not Prince Charles, Prince Philip. Um, yeah. Recently, and that's exactly the kind of character I'm used to seeing in him. Like the first time I saw Tobias Menzies, he was Brutus in HBO's Rome, um, oh, in which in which he's great. <laughs> but yeah, he's usually he has a he has that. Um, he has a British accent that, without trying to sound like an asshole, the only <laughs> word I can think that describes his particular British accent is smug. Yeah. You know, like, he's not yeah. he's yeah, not yeah. trying to be smug, but he sounds smug. You, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, sure. And that's usually the kind of character that he plays. And this one is a much more down-to-earth uh, I really enjoyed his performance as someone who's just having a real like crisis, like existential crisis about his life. And there's a conversation in this film between as they 
you know, the whole inciting incident being that he says behind her back that he doesn't like her book and she overhears this. And when they finally have a conversation about it later in the film, that conversation is by far my favorite scene in the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. Just the way they explain to one another why they are telling the lies they tell. and, And him even being like, you're always telling me I'm a good therapist, but you don't fucking know. Like, you've never mm. been in therapy with me. Like, why do you do that? And that whole conversation is just wonderful from start to finish. And I think many, many, many people will relate to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, anyone in a long-term relationship, this film is going to have something for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, really like, I really like how the, the story was told as well. I've something that really is pissing me off at the moment is uh, a necessary exposition in uh, in the way a narrative is portrayed it's, I really hate in filmmaking when we're told something instead of the filmmaker using a creative way to show us that thing or the script using Im- implication <laughs> the implication the script using implication to tell us the facts instead of a fact and I thought the script was br- so good at giving us information without telling us what the information is just through half conversations through uh, uh the, the character's relationship like we are we learn it through context what a concept we watch a movie and we learn the information through context and i and this this script is exactly what i've been talking about in that it used filmmaking and clever script writing to get the same information to us instead of telling us directly this is what's this is who this person is and this is what's happening which really pisses me off but it's really good yeah, and also does a really good job of making characters feel whole and real. And I think maybe the, a good example of that is there's a character in this movie who is talked about but never seen who feels real. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's, I mean, that's difficult to pull off, but this movie manages to do it. Like, the, the son has a girlfriend who you never see, who is only ever spoken about, but she still feels like a real person. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And, you know, we talked a lot about Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies, but uh, Owen Teague is a hell of an up-and-comer. And yeah. I, he's been in a number of really great things in the last few years, and I really, really hope that continues because he's, he's got a really interesting, natural presence. Um, mm-hmm. And he's really good. I mean, most of the stuff that I've seen him in, like, you've probably seen him in, like, the It movies, uh, and he was in an episode of Black Mirror, I think. Um, but he was in a, an HBO show called Ms. Fletcher, Mrs. Fletcher with, uh, Catherine Hahn. And he was, he's just excellent in it as this kid who doesn't know, you know, that he, he ends up in this, basically in a relationship with a, with an older woman played by Catherine Hahn. And it's, they, they both sort of discover who they are through this relationship and it's, it's just wonderful and he's really good in it. So I really hope that he continues to have, um, make great choices like this is what i'm trying to say yeah yeah and we and honest and honestly we'd be we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about i think michaela watkins who plays the sister who Mm -hmm. has like a very particular tone of voice a very particular way of delivering things that complements julia louis dreyfus's so well um she's one of those actors who she's not super super famous but when she does show up and stuff you're like oh it's her she's great (laughs) and uh um, and, uh, and this this movie was no exception. Janine Berlin as the mum as well was ex- I mean, brilliantly written. I have to say as well, her her lines with the the hints of the dementia that's coming, but it's never actually like talked about. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's exquisitely written, and she the interplay between the two sisters and the mum is so hilarious, but also so fucking real. So yeah. true. There's, there's one that who'd, who'd have known a conversation about how to transport potato salad would make me go, oh my God, I've had this exact <laughs> conversation. Like, I've been there myself. So it's it's one of those movies where you're going to recognize yourself. And we, you and I and our friend Rob have had the exact conversation about sock quality as well. So, oh yeah, that's true. That's really true. We, we are these people. Yeah, this, this is actually basically a really good example of you know, if anyone ever says, "Why don't they make movies for adults anymore?" You can be, you can just say, "You know what? You hurt my feelings." Comes out on May twenty sixth, twenty twenty three, in cinemas, and you can go watch it because uh, this is very much a film made for adults, and I, I adore yeah. it just for that. It's a nice adult like lunch date movie, but also it's uh, it's going to be on demand very very soon, so don't feel bad if you miss it in the theater. It's nice to support it in the theater if you can, but it's also good. it's a lovely snuggle at home with a bottle of wine movie too. So, um, so when when you have an opportunity to watch it that fits you, you're you're. I don't think you're going to miss anything by watching it at home instead of on the big screen. Um, but mm. it's, it's really lovely. I know your your opinion is watch everything on the big screen if you can. I don't really disagree with you, but it's a lovely, comforting movie, however you watch it. I mean, I will say that 100% just when you get a chance, you should watch it. However you get, however you get a chance, take that chance. Also, I'm here for the David Cross renaissance. Not that he ever really went away, but I've seen him in two things now where he's a grumpy man with a white beard, and I, I think he is... Uh, He's got a brilliant, snappy delivery that you don't really see in Arrested Development, or and uh, I, I really, really like him. Oh, I, I disagree. You definitely see his delivery. The difference yeah. here is that he's the difference here is that he's being acerbic and not um, ridiculous. Um, but you could definitely see that delivery in everything that he does. Um, okay. And and in 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 particular, like if you don't believe me, just go look up old shows of. Uh, old episodes of uh, Mr. Show with Bob and David, which is his oh, comedy. No, no idea what that is. Uh, he had a sketch comedy show with Bob Odenkirk called Mr. Show with Bob and David, and it's really funny. <laughs> Bob Odenkirk did a comedy show. Bob Odenkirk is a comedian. <laughs> what? Yeah, he just transitioned to drama, like not that, like in this in the sc- span of his career, he became very famous for drama very recently. Huh, I had no idea. Yeah. I hadn't heard of him before Breaking Bad. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. I will check that out. I don't know. Maybe, are you not, maybe not cut up because uh, David Cross also had an episode of What We Do in the Shadows, I think, last year. I think. Pretty, who's, pretty sure. Who was he in What We Do in the Shadows? Uh, no, I think, I'm just looking at that. He was season three. He was Dominicus the Dreadful in season three. Was that him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a good, it's a good show. You should definitely watch that show. Anyway, how many stars are you gonna give to "You Hurt My Feelings"? I went, I went back and forth between three and four, but I think this, uh, for other three star movies, I think this is, uh, like objectively, it's a four star movie. It's so well written, well directed, well made, well edited. Uh, and it, it's so sweet. The fact that it's very light, I think, shouldn't be held against it because I, I actually like that element. 
Um, so it's a four-star movie for me. How about you? Uh, it's four for me as well, just because, again, it's okay. so... It is light, but it's also very true and honest, and uh, yeah. I value that in yeah, my cinema. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so we are <laughs> over over time. So, thank you for sticking with us through this whole episode. Um, to answer your question, Simon, no, I have no idea what we're covering next week, um, but we do have. I um, I am accredited for the Tribeca Film Festival, so we may have at least one episode where I get us some Tribeca Film Festival uh, things to cover. Uh, that starts in two or three weeks. Uh, it's through the middle of June, anyway. Um, so look for that. Uh, you'll also be able to see my TV coverage of Tribeca uh, on that shelf uh, in the coming weeks as well. Um, yeah. Uh, so... That is the end of the show. So we're going to end it here. Thank you for uh, listening to everyone who is listening, whether you're new here or old here. We appreciate you very much. Uh, you can find the show on the socials uh, at Awesome Friday CA on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find Simon on Twitter at Temporary Pen. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Smatthew AF. Uh, if you've liked what you heard, please consider giving us uh, a like, a subscribe, a five-star rating. Whatever your podcasting platform of choice lets you do, uh, please do those things. Those things are what get us onto the charts uh, and in front of more eyeballs and earballs. So uh, we would very much appreciate it. And if you'd like to support us more directly, we do have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash mcsimpson, uh, which will be in the show notes. Uh, and every tier... Of support does get bonus features bonus conversation every week this week we talked about star trek lower decks and letter kenny uh which it sounds <laughs> like nice. it, it sounds like a discordant pair but promise i promise you it works um uh we record this here in vancouver on the traditional ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. One last time, thank you so much for listening and for joining us on this awesome Friday. Bye.